0: So today, we officially, completely wrap up our sermon series in the book of Judges. This is an overview on Judges Part 2. Part 1, of course, was last week. And the title of this morning's sermon is Being Godly People in an Ungodly World. Being Godly People in an Ungodly World. Well, last week in Part 1, of our theological overview on Judges, we dealt with the concept of being God's people in an ungodly world. So today, we're, we're, we're considering being godly people in an ungodly world. So open your Bibles and turn to 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 19. 2 Timothy 2, 19. Part of what we're going to explore this morning is what's the difference between being God's people and being godly people? What does it mean to be godly people? How do we do that? How does it impact how we live in the world? How does it impact how we live in an ungodly world, a sinful world, a fallen world? Well, Paul writes to Pastor Timothy in his second letter, 2 Timothy 2.19, and these these pastoral we call them the pastoral letters, because Paul is writing to other pastors, to pastors, to men he is trained, and they're 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 very profitable for us because Paul is giving instruction on how to live as a Christian, basically, but also how to guide the flock that these men have have been put over so it's not just advice to those who are in uh, a pastoral position it's it's good, solid teaching. For all believers. And this is what um, Paul says to uh, Timothy in in this verse. But God's firm foundation stands, bearing this seal The Lord knows those who are his, and let everyone who names the name of the Lord depart from iniquity. So Paul defines God's people by this phrase, those who are his. They belong to God, thus they're his people. He knows them, God knows them. God has elected them for a special relationship. And since this election takes place before the ages began, as Paul is um, wont to say, and our justification through Christ, the double imputation of Christ's righteousness, righteousness to us, and our sin to Christ, occurs in time. It occurs in human history at a specific time. That is a predestined moment in history for each of us. So with that understanding, we realize there's a period in our lives when we are unaware of our election before we come to Christ. And during that time period, we cannot, by definition, be godly people. So theologians will argue over, well, is is a saint, before election, is a saint uh, a person of God at, the, at that time? Uh, is, is he or she a member of, of um, God's people? Well, that's a very deep theological issue, and there's good arguments on both sides. So we're, we're setting that aside for now. We want to concentrate on when we become the people of God, when we, are, when, we, when we are conscious of it, when we have that transformation that makes us realize that God has called us and set us apart, then we are to be godly people. And only, godly pe- only God's people can be godly people. A person who is unsaved, who is not in Christ, but lives a moral, upright life. We, people may say, well, he or she is a godly person, but really they are not because they are not in Christ. That, that, that relationship is essential to be a, a godly person. So Paul defines godly people as those among God's people by this phrase, as everyone who names the name of the Lord. So notice these connections. Godly people acknowledge Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. So this cannot occur until that transformation, right? Until until Christ makes you a new creation. And our acknowledgement by godly people that we're talking about here is not secretly. It's not done secretly, but in a manner that is apparent to others. It's obvious to others, And how are these people, these godly people, known? What identifies them? Paul tells us by this phrase, they are those who depart from iniquity. Godly people actively and in an ongoing manner desist and withdraw from wickedness or unrighteousness. And, And note that what Paul's talking about here is an ongoing action. He's not talking about something that is completed, done once and over with. This is something that the godly must do consistently in this life. And he's not saying, and this is also very important, he's not saying that godly people are without sin. To the contrary, godly people recognize their sinfulness, and they know that it's, it's only in Christ that this sinfulness can be dealt with that they can be justified. And they also realize, and when I say they, I mean us, believers, also they realize how the Lord provides the means to remove the desire for sin. This is the process that we call sanctification, that we're all engaged in. And we're at different places on this process of sanctification. A more mature saint is further along and and may more easily, it seems, deal with the issue of temptation to sin, where a newer believer still has often intense struggles. This does not mean that that new believer is not, in fact, saved. This is just a process that we go through. The Lord equips us as we mature in our faith and we take Use We make use of the means of grace that God provides us to live as his obedient and faithful people. Note also how Paul prefaces these things that I've just mentioned. He says God's firm foundation stands. So these things are at the root, the, the very heart of, really, of God's plan of creation. This, this is how everything was supposed to be, is supposed to be. He says, bearing this seal. In other words, these things are unchanging and unchangeable. They've been sealed by God. So if you were to go to a government office and you had a document that had to be registered, a legal document, it would be stamped with an official seal. It would be sealed that document is cannot be changed at that point without another document that supersedes it. And in Paul's day, in the Roman Empire, seals were how government officials communicated the emperor's decrees and the decisions of the Senate in Rome across the Roman Empire. A document would have the seal of the emperor or the seal of the Senate on it. And it stood as something that could not be changed, could not be argued, there was no recourse to it other than to the one whose seal it bears. It's the same with what, with this, so this is, this is the illustration Paul has in mind as he writes this. He's, you know, he's living in a certain time and place in the world, and so he makes use of the things around him. They make sense to him. It makes sense to his original audience, and we need to understand those things. So, By the seal, God alone has done these things. No one else can do it. And no one can undo it. It can't be altered in any way. And as we we ponder what Paul's saying here, we must realize that there are a difference between the covenants that we find in Scripture. In the Old Testament and the New new Covenant we have now in the Lord Jesus Christ. Um, that is how God relates and interacts with his people, his own people, as well as all people, all people that have, are created by him. So Israel, as a people, at the time of the Judges, were God's people in an ungodly world. That's the land of Canaan, the promised land. It was very ungodly. But in Judges, what we've seen is that they are not godly people. The Israelites are not godly people on the whole. They are apostates who reject the Lord time and time again. But this was not always so. The book of Joshua actually tells us this. And If you recall, as we started this series, we see how the ending of Joshua overlaps into the beginning of Judges. So we read this at the beginning of Judges also. When Joshua successfully led Israel into the promised land of Canaan, he dismissed the assembly. He dismissed the, the, um, the, the tribe of Israel, and each tribe went their own way into the land that had been allotted to them by God in the land of Canaan. And in ch- chapter 2, verses 6 through 7, we read that they, these people that entered into Canaan with Joshua, served the Lord all the days of Joshua and all the days of the elders who outlived Joshua. So, two generations: the generation of the of Exodus, those who were rescued from bondage in Egypt, went through the um, the the promised land, or excuse me, through the wilderness into the promised land, and then. Um, uh, the the generation that came after them. So in verse 10 of chapter 2, we're told there arose another generation after them who did not know the Lord or the work that he had done for Israel. They did not know the Lord. Now what does the author mean by this? Now bear in mind that this was, as, as were all cultures basically at this time, was an oral Culture. They had a very strong oral tradition. They were storytellers. We are also still storytellers. We love stories. It's just the the way they're told has been changed. Um, We're told in, in books or in movies. So there's no doubt that this generation who did not know the Lord knew everything that the Lord had done knew what happened in Egypt, knew what happened in the wilderness because they told stories. So to think that they just stopped talking about the Lord really doesn't make sense in light of that. So we have this idea that we encounter again and again in Scripture when we come across this idea of knowing that it is not an intellectual process. It is a relationship process. They did not have relationship with the Lord anymore because they had become covenant breakers the angel of the Lord announces this to them announces their sin in in chapter 2 verses 1 through 3 and he, the angel of the Lord said I brought you up from Egypt and brought you into the land that I swore to give to your fathers I said I will never break my covenant with you And you shall make no covenant with the inhabitants of this land. You shall break down their altars. But you have not obeyed my voice. What is this you have done? So now I say, I will not drive them out before you, but they shall become thorns in your sides, and their God shall be a snare to you. What is this you have done? Could you imagine the Lord saying that to you? I just, I shudder at that thought. And undoubtedly, there's times in my life where the, where the Lord could have very rightly said that to me. And most likely, I would think to each and every one of us here. Israel disobeyed what God had commanded them to do through Moses, their leader. Yahweh had given them laws that they were to abide by, they were to live by, once they entered into the land he gave them. And we see this in Deuteronomy chapter 7, verses 2 2 and 5. Deuteronomy 7, 2 and 5. They are told, you shall make no covenant with them, speaking of the inhabitants of this land, Canaan, and show no mercy to them. This is this idea of harem that we've talked about it tells you how wicked these people are show them no mercy this is a command coming from a god of mercy and there's no contradiction there this is how these people must be dealt with verse 5 but this you shall deal with but thus shall you deal with them you shall break down their altars and dash in pieces their pillars and chop down their aserim and burn their carved images with fire. They are to completely destroy every form of pagan worship, every evidence of pagan religion, every single piece completely destroyed. But they don't do that. We see this in Judges. They don't. They become worshipers of these things that they were to destroy. They ignore God's commands. and what does that bring? That brings judgment upon them by the Lord. So the escalation of sin and apostasy that we read about in judgment in, in judges, excuse me is the judgment of God. We, we need to understand that. God gives them exactly what they want. They want those things. God gives it to them. And it brings much suffering upon them. That sinful human desire, that's the result of our sin. If we get that that thing, object, person, whatever it is that we sinfully lust after, suffering will follow, undoubtedly. So the nation of Israel as a whole, as a group, was an elect people. And I'm speaking corporately. But not each Israelite was elect as an individual. We have to understand that. God's purpose, he had a purpose for Israel, for this people that were his own. And that was to be the people through whom the Messiah was to come. He established his people to bring the Savior for all people. All people would be blessed thusly through Israel. But of course, there were many faithful elect Israelites. And we must suppose that there were faithful elect Israelites even during the time of judges, although they're not spoken of very often. I would say Jotham, the the half-brother of Abimelech, who who denounced him for murdering their 70 brothers, um, was probably... Uh, you know, elect, he was acting in a faithful way, and the others who acted faithfully. Um, Israel, though, by and large, forsake Yahweh to serve the Baals and the Ashtaroth. This is not faithfulness what they did, it's faithlessness. So we could say faithful people don't serve the Baals and the Ashtaroth. As I commented last week, the, the main theme of Judges, the book overall, is canonization. That Israelites became Canaanites in thought and in action. In the way they behaved, the way they lived. So we could also say faithful people don't act like Canaanites. So there it is. How to be godly people in an ungodly world. Don't worship pagan gods. Don't live your life like a pagan. The end. I hope that helps you. Obviously, I'm not going to end with (laughs) so soon. Um, But we're going to explore this, right? I mean, really, that's the message. And isn't God's message often very simple when we kind of peel away everything and we just, like, boil it down? We can see there's a main message God is giving us. And the other stuff, it's not superfluous. It's not like it doesn't matter. It just amplifies the main message it illustrates it for us it gives us examples and it it makes it understandable and we can tell how important these messages are because our lord has gone through a lot of effort to inspire the authors to write these things so don't be like pagans don't worship pagan gods, easy enough to say. But really, is it as easy to do? No, I, I, I would say not. I, I think we must admit that it sounds simple, but when we are in this world that is sinful, that, that's ungodly, then sometimes we can do things that we know we shouldn't, and we don't even realize maybe we're really doing them. And we don't know how to go about doing what God has commanded us we know perhaps what a verse says, but how do I apply this to my life? And this is what I, what I want to talk about. We're like fish hatched in polluted waters. We've been born into this ungodly world. And all people at all times have faced the same thing except for two people who weren't born so much. They were created by God and then all have come from them in a state of sin because of the rebellion in the garden. So over this last 12 plus months, I would say we've dug pretty deep into Judges and in this excavation that we've been involved in, it seems we've uncovered a book primarily about unfaithfulness. Well, that's kind of a negative way to look at it, and I don't and I, and I don't want us to look at it negatively we we can we, there is hope in judges it points us towards a hope that's that's its its purpose and we must not lose sight of the fact that each of the judges each of the major judges that we've spent time you know learning about these in Hebrew these men called shaphatim, which could be translated as governors or deliverers, but they were primarily military leaders. They weren't judges in a judicial sense we use today. They, for the most part, were not deciding um, court cases and things of that. Each of these men were called and anointed by the Lord. God raised them up as deliverers for Israel against enemies that were attacking Israel, enemies that were brought about by Israel's sin as judgment. But when Israel would repent and turn back to Yahweh, that then a deliverer, a judge, would be raised up to drive out and to protect from these enemies. So when we speak of this faithfulness, it is a mistake to equate it with sinlessness, Scripture speaks of many faithful people, both in the Old Testament and New Testament. But it tells us of only one, doesn't it? One who is without sin, and that's our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. We should not make the mistake of when we read our Bibles to expect sinlessness in any person in there other than Jesus. The Bible very clearly is revealing this to us. Now, those that are not familiar with the Bible, those that are not believers, don't quite get that. And they don't, so they don't understand the Bible. They, they might open it and read a section, or, or they might hear a story or an account, and they think, well, that's, this, this guy that they're talking about, this, um, this, this Samson, doesn't really sound like a good guy, or this these he, These things he did, you know, weren't so good. But we understand that the point that's being made. The veil's been removed from our eyes. So, then what does it mean to be godly or possess the trait of godliness? Well, in the New Testament, in the Greek, um, it, it means devoutness, piety, reverence towards God. It's, it's called yesubia. Uh, and, and godly people in Scripture are often referred to as the saints. The saints of God. God makes saints. Man doesn't make saints. And we don't have plaster statues of dead men. Those aren't the saints we're talking about. When the Word of God refers to saints, He's talking about you, each of you, individually. In the the Old Testament, it comes from uh, the Hebrew term, uh, and our Old Testament translates it as saints, it's kadoshim, which means holy ones. Now, what does holy mean? Is that, is that someone who lives a perfect life? No, that's, that's, that's a, a, an improper understanding. Holy, the holy ones are those set apart for God. They are God's people. And in, in, in the New Testament, it's the same thing. Of course, it's in Greek, it's hagios, which means holy ones, saints, holy ones, or ones dedicated or set apart for God. And this is a wonderful thing. You know, when we think of ourselves as saints, it's, a, it's an encouragement in a certain way, you know, from the Lord that he has blessed us with being his holy ones, being set apart for him. In 1 Timothy chapter 4, verses 7 through 8, Pastor Timothy is given some more advice. He's told by Paul, train yourself for Godliness. For while bodily training is of some value, godliness is of value in every way, as it holds promise for the present life and also for the life to come. So this this statement, I think, is is very enlightening, because it it shows us that being godly is a process. Paul's telling Timothy, you've got to train for this, just like an athlete trains for his or her sport. It's not an instantaneous status bestowed on us. So, this, this is the difference. This just differentiates if, from our status of God's people, which is a status given to us by God through His eternal election. He has made us His people. But godliness is something that we take part in, being godly people. And what is meant by this term godliness? It's a devotion to God that involves an awareness or a practical consciousness of God in every aspect of our lives. A person who claims to be a Christian who never gives God much thought really you can see how they're out of step with this definition. To be a godly person, in other words, a Christian, a true Christian, God is is God is is part major part of your life. He is everything to you. God's people are godly people by the manner in which they live. They they can be identified as such. They live as godly people. Their lifestyle reflects the importance of God in their lives. They act as godly people. Their behavior demonstrates their awareness of God's omnipresence they realize that God is always with them that he is everywhere they think as godly people their intellect reveals that God is ever present in their thoughts and this intellect of course plays out in how we live and how we behave godly people are those who trust God completely and express their trust in obedience to him So John Calvin, in his commentary on the first letter to Timothy, he says this. The person who has godliness lacks nothing. Godliness is the beginning, middle, and end of Christian living. And where it is completed, nothing is lacking. This brings me to my first point. Point number one. God has a special concern for the godly. God has a special concern for the godly. In Psalm 4, verse 3, David writes, But know that the Lord has set apart the godly for himself. The Lord hears when I call to him. And here, in in this verse, what is translated as godly comes from the Hebrew word, hasid which can be translated as faithful and it comes from a root word hased now if you've been paying attention i talk about hased a lot i think hased is a wonderful thing in the old testament it mainly it's used in the sense of how god treats his people which is steadfast love or loving loyalty it is it is a marvelous thing it's a, it's like a special category of love so this word of um, the faithful or the godly person coming from this root word has said really tells us that this should be our response back to God who's initiated the relationship that we have with him he's the one who brought us into this relationship and he's done something special David tells us he has set apart the godly for himself. And set apart means to treat excellently, to treat as special. Then David writes later in the 32nd Psalm, verse 6, Therefore let everyone who is godly offer prayer to you at a time when you may be found. So in these two Psalms I've just mentioned, David reveals to us That the Lord hears the prayers of the godly, and that the godly are to pray to the Lord. But what does David mean when he he says about God, to God, at a time when you may be found? What does that mean? Is there a time when God can't be found? What, What David is saying here is he's talking about today. He says today. Today in his day. And today in our day, today at all times, until the Lord returns. Today, friends, is a day of opportunity, a time when God may be found. Isaiah wrote about today. In his book, chapter 55, verses six and seven, he says, "Seek the Lord when He may be found." Call on him when he is near. Let the wicked forsake his way and the evil man his thoughts. Let me break in here. The Lord is calling his people to repentance here. Today is the day of repentance. Back to what Isaiah is writing. Let him turn to the Lord and he will have mercy on him and to our God for he will freely pardon. We know this. We're freely pardoned. There's nothing we have to do. God does it all for us. So we live now, today, in a time of grace. And this is a great thing. That's what David is saying in these psalms. Today is a time when God is not far from each one of us. That's what Paul proclaimed to the College of Philosophers in the city of Athens when he went there in Acts chapter 17. They didn't realize exactly, they turned it into like a metaphysical thing, you know, and it was, they made it really complicated as philosophers do. They probably had, you know, if anyone that wasn't a philosopher had their heads, they would have had their heads spinning, listen to the arguments, and those philosophers would have been arguing back and forth about what this means. But that's what Paul is meaning. It's like he's not far from you because he has come. He has come as the Lord Jesus and salvation is of today. You do not have to wait. You do not have to do all these weird philosophical steps. You don't have to live in a barrel and and eat like a dog, like some of the schools of philosophy, the the cynics and the stoics and, and so on and so forth. As Paul said, now is the time of God's favor. Now is the day of salvation, he wrote to the Corinthians in his second letter that we have. But think on this. Implied in David's words is a sobering teaching that the day of God's grace will not last forever. If he's talking about today, then there is a tomorrow, right? But by the mercy of God, that tomorrow that David is is implying has not come upon the world yet. Today will come to an end. The day of judgment is coming. And on that day, No longer will it be today. It will be too late to repent and receive forgiveness from the Lord. So friends, if you're not already in Christ, today is the day of salvation. Do not wait. Come to Christ now. The special relationship that that David writes about, about the godly having, being able to, to pray to God and God hearing the prayers... The New Testament speaks of this also. We find it in the Gospel of John, chapter 9, verse 31, where where it says, We know that God does not listen to sinners, but if anyone is a worshiper of God and does his will, God listens to him. So then prayer, and by prayer I mean both our praying to God and God's answering of our prayers are the trait, the practice, and the experience of the godly. This is what godly people do, and God hears godly people, his people. And this is why the ungodly demean prayer. As John points out, in general, they are denied access to prayer, so it seems futile and meaningless to them. Think. Think of the beginning of the time of great fear in 2020. Social media influencers, news anchors, politicians were preaching. Yes, they preach in an ungodly way. That They preached that prayer was useless, that prayer wouldn't save you. No, it wouldn't save you. The only thing that was going to save you is science. Science and medicine alone are your salvation. So stop this nonsense of praying. Many, many listened to them and believed them, were influenced by them. Some of these, unfortunately, were Christians who should have known better. That suddenly the great fear turned them into practicing unbelievers, practicing atheists, like I spoke of last week, in a time of trial. For their faith found them without faith. Jesus, in his teaching about praying, to always pray and to not lose heart. Luke writes about this in his gospel, Luke chapter 18. And at the end of this parable, he's telling, Jesus is telling a parable here of the persistent widow. And she's an example of going to this judge who doesn't want to hear you know, a judicial officer, and presenting her case over and over and over again. And finally, the judge is just like, you know, and he's not a good guy. He's kind of a, um, you know, wicked. He's a wicked judge. But he listens to her because she's persistent. So this parable, of course, you know, what Jesus is, is, is illustrating is, is godly people petitioning our Heavenly Father, who is not... Like this judge, he is gracious, he is loving, he is merciful. So, how much more would the loving God listen to your petitions, your supplications? And Jesus says, talking about this idea of, of, of praying and not losing heart, he closes with this very poignant rhetorical question that really should just strike our hearts. Especially as we're in a time of trial. Our Lord says, when the Son of Man comes, will he find faith on earth? That's a very good question. I'll give my answer. Yes, he will, because he gives us faith. It is, the, it is through God, through the Holy Spirit, that we are bestowed faith, that we, we are strengthened in our time of trial. But brothers and sisters, we have to respond to what our triune God does for us and what he gives us. We just don't throw up our hands and like, you know, God says it's, it's time for autopilot and God's going to land us, you know, on the deck of the aircraft carrier. No, we've got we've to work the stick, the, the throttle, and the rudders to do this. And we're still in, as I said, we're still in what I'm calling this time of great fear. It has not passed. It may have subsided a bit for now, but there will be other fears that will come. Beloved of God, realize that fear is the natural state of the ungodly world, and it is a sinful fear. So, this time of great fear really is the time of all human history. Most humans have lived in a state of fear for most of their life, and it should not be so. And the Son of God came to change that for us. Point number two is the fear of God is the only fear that is appropriate for the godly. The fear of God is the only fear that is appropriate for the godly. We are not to fear man. Fear of man is sinful fear. The Lord commands us. It's written in Matthew 10, verse 28. Do not fear those who kill the body but cannot kill the soul. Rather, fear him who can destroy both soul and body in hell. And that alone, beloved, is God. So why fear disease or sickness? It's natural to us to fear disease or sickness, right? But sin is natural to us also. Are not all of these things under the sovereignty of God, brothers and sisters? Look to the assurances that David writes about in the 91st Psalm. I love the 91st Psalm. When I was a police officer, I shared this Psalm with other cops. It's like, this is a policeman's well police officer I started I was a policeman a long time ago until not that long ago but when I started we were policemen our badges said policemen so sometimes I say that but I should say police officer because it makes everybody feel better. So I would share with these police officers and this this is written for police officers. You know you, you gotta read this. So I would give them copies of it. But think on these things that that David tells us in the 91st Psalm. The Lord will deliver you from the deadly pestilence. In verse 4. You will not fear the terror of the night. Nor the arrow that flies by day. Nor the pestilence that stalks in darkness. Nor the destruction that wastes at noonday. Verses 5 and 6. Because you have made the Lord your dwelling place, in verse 9. No evil shall be allowed to befall you. No evil shall be allowed to befall you. Evil is controlled by our Lord. No plague come near your house, in verse 10. For he, the Lord God, will command his angels concerning you to guard you in all your ways. Wow, if that's not confidence building, if that's not encouraging, I don't know what is. So quickly, this brings me to my third point, point number three. Satan schemes against the godly. Satan schemes against the godly. Satan is a counterfeiter of God, friends. He attempts to mirror all things of God, but like a mirror, the image is reversed. It's backwards. It, he does it backwards. As I stated in my first point this morning, God has a special concern for the godly. Then, it should be no surprise that Satan mirrors this attention. But Satan's attention is not based on hased or steadfast, loving loyalty for the godly, but Enmity, an intense, constant hatred, but it's often disguised in a manner that may appear good. That's, that's where he tricks us. So there's this book that I, that I recommend that I'm going to draw upon here a bit. Uh, it's by Thomas Brooks, a 17th century English Puritan preacher. And it's entitled Precious Remedies Against Satan's Devices. It is not a quick read. It's not a book you want to sit down like a Sunday afternoon and you read it cover from cover. Brooke's book is a book that I keep on my desk. And I I, I take parts of it at a time. And he, he goes through these different schemes, so many of them, that the Satan uses against us. And he has remedies. What the godly person, what the Christian, how to respond, what to do, what to dwell upon, what to think upon, what verses address this. And it's a magnificent help. Yes, the language is a little bit, you know, old-fashioned, because the guy lived in the 1600s. But, and you know what? He, not much is known about him. But he wrote this wonderful book, and it's, it's a great help. Anyway, I could go on and on. Let me stop there. And so um, this book, as I said, is helpful. Helped us navigate Satan's traps and snares. So Satan tends to show us sin as overwhelming, powerful, and unstoppable. Right? All we have to do is turn on the, the TV news or read a newspaper or Internet news. And sin is like, we're we're lost. We're doomed. We're just doomed. I worked with a guy in the police department. He and I were radio car partners, and we went up through the ranks as lieutenants. And as lieutenants, we had to go to these staff meetings. And this is where I learned to hate meetings. So in these staff meetings, we would sit. And we're lieutenants, so we really couldn't say, we didn't say anything unless we were asked a question. We were low ranking in management. (laughs) And we would walk out of these staff meetings. It would last an hour or more We'd walk out in the hallway, and Greg would always turn to me and he would say, We're doomed. <laughs> whatever decision, whatever conversation, we're just doomed. <laughs> so so um, that's, that's the mindset that we can very easily get, right? We, and we've got to work against this, we've got to guard against this. Satan schemes to keep you, the saint of God, In a sad, doubting, questioning, and uncomfortable condition. That is his goal. However, think on this. Satan must have double permission to do anything to the godly. He must have leave by God to do it, number one. Satan is on a leash. He can only do what the Lord allows him to do. Number two... You saints of God, you have to give him permission to do these things to you. You have to fall into his trap. He cannot waylay you at the side of the road and drag you into his snare. You have to walk into it. Satan attempts to demoralize the godly by false inferences from What Brooks calls the cross-actions of divine providence. What is meant by this? Providence, we know, refers to how God interacts with people and his creation. Basically, how he runs the world. How he causes all things to function and operate. And cross-providences are when initial events seem to be against any possible good purpose intended by God. Satan will take these cross providences and will make us think nothing good is going to come out of this. That we are doomed. Consider that many things contrary to our desires are not contrary to our good. What we want for ourselves, what we think is best for us, God, our loving Heavenly Father, knows better. And what we want may not be a good thing. Consider how cross provinces, as, as Brooks points out, are sent by God to work some noble good for His saints. There's many examples in in Scripture that occur at a personal level, and I'm going to pull out a few, and 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 you'll say, "Yeah, yeah, of course, that I can I can see that. It, it makes sense." So Joseph, Joseph, right in in towards the end of the Book of Genesis. Joseph is sold into slavery and then later imprisoned by his slave masters for false accusations. He's accused of something he he hasn't done. He's thrown into prison. But all of this that he goes through goes towards preserving his father Jacob and his brothers, which are the people of Israel in the you know their their germ form, their seed form. This is what the nation of Israel came out of. And through this horrible experience that that Joseph went through comes the people of Israel through which the Messiah will come. There's cross, that's cross-providence right there. Jonah is another great example. So Jonah, the reluctant prophet, right, he's told to go. Um, and, and preach to the, uh, the Assyrians, preach repentance. He doesn't want to. So he gets on a boat going the other way. And a storm comes up, right? And they're going to die. And so he gets chucked overboard by the sailors, right? And a great fish swallows him up. And he's in the belly of this great fish for three days. And then the fish swims up to dry land and spits him out onto dry land. And Jonah staggers into Nineveh, the, the, the capital of the Assyrian Empire. And the Assyrians, they were horrible, horrible people. They were the Klingons of the time before Christ. You saw an Assyrian coming, and you, you knew things were going to go bad. They were, it was going to go sideways, and you should just beskedaddle and get out of there. But, and this is what Brooks proposes, and it makes sense, but there's not scriptural support for this, so understand that. So he proposes, that, you know, it makes sense that these sailors who chucked them overboard, chucked Joan overboard, knew that he got spit out by this fish, that he survived three days in the belly of this great fish, and that now he's alive and he comes to Nineveh. And they're telling the story in all the seaports. You know, sailors, they tell stories and so on and so forth. They come to port, stories spread, and the, the Ninevites hear of this, and they realize that this man is a man of God. I mean, look what he's gone through, and he's on a divine mission, and this is why they listen to him. This is why they respond in such a fashion that that Jonah is just shocked and a little bit not happy because he would like them all to die because they're Assyrians, right? Nobody likes them. Um, From the king on down, you know, they're in sackcloth and repenting. And so cross-providences here by what Jonah goes through, many are brought to salvation outside of the people of Israel. Gentiles. Gentiles evil, wicked Gentiles. And so scripture also has examples of cross-providences on a larger national scale. And I think this is helpful for us during this time we're in. there's, There's events going on in the world now. It's full of events that are bigger than us. Events that we look at and we're like, what can I do? This is this is beyond my control. And let's admit it: there are many of us, like myself and others I know very well, who want to control things. That's what, as a cop, that's what I was taught back in the day. You control every situation you are in. But I tell you what: we learn quickly, and I learned as a police officer. I learned more as a husband and a father and a grandfather that the, most things are not are just out of my control. You know, it's like well, what can I do? And this is and the news reinforces that these days, doesn't it? We must be mindful of what God has revealed to us in Scripture about this very thing. He is the Lord of all. What He decrees comes to pass. Nothing comes to pass unless He decrees it. Everything that happens works to bring about His will. Daniel chapter 2 and here is another example our brother Erlin was was speaking this morning at 10 a.m. of of the book of Daniel and I'm thinking I'm going to be telling the same story so you know it's like here we go again Lord you're working you're moving amongst your people your spirit we have unity in in the spirit don't we brothers and sisters so there's a strange dream that happens um, uh, Nebuchadnezzar's first dream and Nebuchadnezzar is the mightiest king on earth and he dreams about the statue the statue of a man that is, that is, that is frightening and this statue is oddly made of different it's, com- it's composed of different elements different metals and stuff and so none of the Chaldeans the wise men of Babylon could no, if you remember Nebuchadnezzar wouldn't even tell them what the dream was Right? he says no you interpret my dream We will, mighty king. Oh, tell us what the dream is. Oh, no no doing. No, you guys tricked me by doing that. You tell me what the dream is. You tell me what I dreamed and then tell me what it means. And they're like, no man alive can do that. You're asking the impossible. And Nebuchadnezzar says, well, I'm just going to kill you all because you're useless to me then. And then someone says, hey, there's this Jewish captive that we've trained. You know, and he's really good at this stuff, we think. So but we bring him up. And so Daniel, the Lord reveals to Daniel what Nebuchadnezzar's dream is. And he repeats it to Nebuchadnezzar. And that's enough to blow anyone's mind, right? But then he interprets the dream. He reveals the contents of the dream and its meaning. It's all about the rise and fall of great world empires. Which Nebuchadnezzar is the king of the greatest empire on earth at the time all of these empires are given and taken away by as David excuse me as Daniel says to these Babylonians these pagans by the great god of heaven they don't know Yahweh they're not in covenant relationship so they know of gods so the great god of heaven is how Daniel explains it Explains who is doing all this, and there's the last revelation that he gives is about the the, um, the feet and toes of, of the statue. And if you re- read the account, you remember they're, they're mixed of different things. There's iron and there's clay, and in some translations it's called miry. Um, and he and but this interpretation also explains the purpose of all of the kingdoms that are in the dream. And in verse 44, I'm going to read that. Um, Daniel tells Nebuchadnezzar, and in the days of those kings, the the feet and toes he's talking about, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom that shall never be destroyed, nor shall the kingdom be left to another people. It shall break in pieces all these kingdoms and bring them to an end, and it shall stand forever. He's not talking about an earthly kingdom. He's talking about our Lord's kingdom. He's talking about the kingdom of heaven, the kingdom of God, which controls all of these earthly empires. And they only exist through God's decree and God's will. And God is establishing a kingdom that will supersede them, that will wipe them out, a kingdom that will never end. The prophet Isaiah also talks about these kingdoms. In the book of Isaiah, chapter 23, there's an oracle or a divine revelation concerning these places called Tyre and Sidon. These are major Phoenician city states, and they were powerful. They ruled a lot of the land of Canaan, the, the promised land. There were great, inf- great influences over, over Canaan, and much of the eastern part of the Mediterranean. They were the first sea power. In the world, they controlled shipping in the great sea, what we call the Mediterranean. And they gained this power from before the time of Joshua and the conquest. They're already established when Joshua brings the Israelites into the promised land. They were around for a long time. And Tyre, one of their major cities, according to this oracle, was to be laid waste. It was to be. Ruined, destroyed. And in chapter 23, verse 8 of Isaiah, there's this rhetorical question that's posed. Who has purposed this against Tyre, the bestower of crowns? Tyre, so powerful that it it could determine who ruled other lands. They were the ones who gave crowns. There are nations that are like that today. Things have not changed. Tyre, so powerful that in verse 8, it goes on and says, Its merchants were princes whose traders were the honored of the earth. The representatives of this city-state, the Phoenician Empire, were treated like royalty wherever they went because they were so powerful. So this could describe many other empires that we've seen come and go. The Greek Empire the Roman Empire, and most recently in history, but they've been gone before our time, is, the, the, is Britain, the British Empire. It was once said of Britain, the sun never sets on the British Empire. Well, the sun has set on the British Empire, as it sets on every empire. Each of these have served God's purpose in a way that is invisible to most of us. Bringing me to point number four. The godly depend on God, not earthly rulers. The godly depend on God, not earthly rulers. Satan would have you think that God's providential decree over empires and rulers signals the end of the world as we know it. That's what a lot of people are thinking now. Yet keep in mind there is no event, no matter how small, over which God is not sovereign. And there's no event which is too big for God to be sovereign over either. And this idea that some people have of world events spiraling out of control into an inadvertent nuclear war and planetary destruction, I think would make God laugh because it's absurd. There's no moment ever where God has lost control. I've known Christians who have talked to me about this and have been broke down crying in fear that things were so bad that so-and-so was going to do some world leader, was going to do this and then this was going to happen and we were all going to die and their children, yada, 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 yada. And it's like, where is your understanding of the sovereignty of God? Where is your faith in God? Scripture does not tell us that that is going to happen. It's not the way... Things pan out. And by the Lord's providence, think on this. We each live where and when he has decreed. We are here now because this is part of his plan. We are part of his plan. Each of you are part of his plan. It's not an accident. It's not that you don't matter. It's not nonchalant. It is purposeful and for a reason. We see this. The illustration I want to use is, is Paul, the Apostle Paul. He lived at the time of the Roman Empire. We, we know that. That's, that's not new news. And he was a citizen of that empire. That was a special status with privileges. Very few were citizens of the Roman Empire. But Paul was. And he made use of those privileges as a citizen the privileges of the, that Roman law accorded to him, he refused, refused to allow government officials to treat him otherwise. It's not like, oh, this, this petty bureaucrat, you know, he's, he's got authority over me and I'll just do what he says. No, Paul would argue the point. He would claim his status as a Roman citizen. You cannot do this to me. I am a citizen of Rome. And they were like, well, that changes things. And hopefully we won't have our heads lopped off for what we've done to this man. He used Roman law to further his gospel mission. That's the important point. And to thwart the schemes of Satan to hamper the gospel spread. Satan was trying to stop the gospel from spreading. And he was using these government bureaucrats as his tools to do so. But God is greater. God also used bureaucrats of the Roman Empire to further the spread of the gospel. He used the laws of the Roman Empire that he had established. He had es- God established that empire. Think of this. We've mentioned it before. The gospel probably would not have spread as quickly and uh, like wildfire if it were not for the Roman Empire and the Pax Romana. The peace of Rome. Nobody would create a disturbance. If you created a disturbance, the Romans were going to come get you. And when they came to get you, you were going to stay got. So think about this. This this demonstrates one of the divine purposes of Rome. An empire ruled by notoriously evil men used by God to bring salvation to God's people and defeat the wiles of Satan. Satan. Now, you should be able to see the application to us. If you don't, I'll go into a little detail. We live not in an empire, you know, technically, legally speaking. We live in a constitutional republic established by God, as surely as any other nation has been established by God in time, as surely as the Roman Empire. Yet it's different, isn't it? Our constitutional republic is founded on certain premises, principles, that God is the creator of all, that life and liberty and happiness come from God, and that each individual person is created by God specially and has what we call rights, and that no one can take those rights away. Government cannot undo rights given by God. Our Constitution does not establish, does not make rights, does not give us rights. It recognizes rights that our founding fathers say are ours inherently and inalienably given to us by God. Unless we forget, and we seem to forget this, how our nation was formed. Thirteen small colonies rose up in rebellion against the British tyrant to establish liberty in the land. This, my friends, did not happen outside of God's decree. We must realize that. That it was a furtherance of what God wanted done, his decrees. So like Paul, we are to rightly use our government, which God has given us, to live as godly people. There's a reason why God decreed a government as such as ours to come into existence. Under such a government, the gospel should be spread. The gospel should be preached. Godly people should be protected and looked upon with favor. So, Let us not be like Israel during the time of the judges, forgetting the Lord, except when we're under the threat of destruction. Let us not erect idolatrous shrines across the land. They're there already, but let's not contribute to that. Charles Spurgeon, the prince of preachers, preached against this. He said, whatever a man depends upon... Whatever rules his mind, whatever governs his affections, whatever is the chief object of his delight is his God. So think on that. That's, you know, we don't need statues to Baal. We don't need Ashtaroth poles. If we have something that excites us, that we have a greater love and interest in than the Lord God, then we're being adulterous. Point number five, the godly are equipped for spiritual warfare. The godly are well equipped for spiritual warfare. No weapons but spiritual weapons are useful and serviceable to us in fighting Satan and his seeds. God has revealed to us Satan's nature by the names given to him in scripture. He's called adversary for his enmity against us. He is called abaddon or destroyer for his desire towards us, what he wants to do to us. He's called serpent for his subtlety in how he tempts us. He's called the dragon for his cruelty cruelty that he displays towards us. And lion for his desire to devour us. But Paul, under inspiration, writes to Romans in chapter 16, verse 20, That God will crush Satan under the feet of the godly. God will make use of us, of each and every one of you, beloved of God, to undo Satan. Remember, Christ has already won the war. Satan is a defeated adversary. Christ has led him into captivity by the cross. And Christ has put mighty weapons into our hands By Christ's power, the church will be triumphant. The church's power will not fade away nor be overcome. No matter what you read in the Wall Street Journal, no matter what CNN talks about, you know, the polls of belief in God is is withering away and then the talking head atheists come on. Yeah, it's bound to happen. People are waking up. You know, science, science. We've got to pay attention to science. Forget the superstition, yada, yada, yada. No, that, that is not going to happen. The, the, the church goes through lean years. The church goes through fat years. But the Lord provides at all times. And these people will be proven wrong. They're being proven wrong in countries where we think this cannot happen. Like communist China. Where Christianity is exploding. They're not going to tell you about that. But you listen to missionaries, you listen to messages of Chinese pastors that are smuggled out, their messages are smuggled out of China and given to us. And it's amazing what is happening there and in other parts of the world, the Middle East, Africa, and we go on and on. So the excellence and power of God's grace is going to be further manifested through our grappling with this mighty adversary. So do not look at this time as a time of fear. Don't look around us and think that um, we are defeated. Because the defeat of the mighty by the weak brings glory to God alone. If each of us were mighty, if each of us were like Superman, then it wouldn't be, who, who would see God's work? But they look at us and they're like, they're nothing. They're nothing. They, you know, they're, they don't have a lot of money. You know, they're not, they're not a particularly um, uh, powerful, strong. They're, they're are, they aren't great in numbers. And look what happens. That, that's God's work. My last point. Point number six. Godly people are guided by God's word. Godly people are guided by God's word. I know many of, many of my points are often like, well, no fooling sort of points. But, but, they're, but they're the basics. They're fun, the fundamentals that we need to focus on, right? And at, at times we get into very difficult theological issues. At other times we just need to talk about the basics. So we're to live as God commands us to live by his reve- revealed word, the Bible, Number 1, keep humble. Humility is a sign of faith. False humility is a sign of human ego. Focus on the Lord as Lord over all things in your life. Give to the Lord your crown and your scepter. All of us have those. All of us want to wear we love to to wear that crown and and wield that scepter and be in control and be the Lord's of as much as we can. It is in poorness of spirit, that is humility, that we find rich blessings. Now this is odd, isn't it? Poor in spirit, rich in blessings. It's like, who in the who who in the sinful world would make something like that up? No, that's not how the world thinks, but that is how we're to think, brothers and sisters. And keep a strong, close watch over your soul. Satan never rests shall the Christian keep up communion with God and by this not only do I mean the Lord's supper but communion comes from a latin word that means um to share so we when we when we approach the lord's table like we did this morning we are sharing with the lord his life and his death and his resurrection and and we do it when we gather together. We're in communion. In some uh, denominations, their whole denomination is called a communion because we're we're together. We we should think of it that way. Um, it's our it's our fellowship. It's our gathering to hear the word. It's our gathering to um, to to pray together and to to sing. Draw strength and virtue from Christ, not from yourself. Our own strength and virtue is very much limited, as I've spoke on. But Christ, his strength and virtue is boundless. It is without limit. And he gives us to us freely. He makes us available to us. But our first step is we must admit our limitations and our weaknesses and ask him to supply us with what we lack. And Thomas Brooks adds, Be in much prayer. He writes, prayer is a shelter to the soul, a sacrifice to God, and a scourge to the devil. Prayer is the gate of heaven, a key that leads us into paradise. There is nothing that renders Satan's plot fruitless like prayer. And make use of thankfulness. Let us not forget the benefits that God has given us. Remember that most of the world, and even the greatest part of those who profess to be Christians, as Brooks writes, are taken in by Satan's snares. But it is not so for godly people. We see Satan's snares. We recognize them. We realize there is a purpose for everything under heaven, as Solomon writes in Ecclesiastes. And there's going to come a time when all of this will have passed. I, I, can, I can guarantee it because God promises this to us. This, this is going to be over. Today is going to end and tomorrow will come. And we will be together in paradise. And we will see why these things have happened and it will make sense to us. There's this scene from J.R.R. Tolkien's prequel to The Lord of the Rings called The Similarian. The Silmar Okay, you know what, some of you know what I'm trying to say, right? Anyway, two of the characters are discussing creation. You know, why was it created this way? What is the purpose in evil? And one of them says this, and this has just always stayed with me. Evil will be good to have been. There's a purpose behind it. It has been, it is no longer. But it is good that it was because of that we are here. So in some way that God will reveal to us, we are here. We will be there in eternal glory because of this that had been that is so hard for us now. The wickedness and the evil. God is going to take the very worst of what we experience and what we hear of, and he's going to make the very best of it. Don't ask me how. No human being can explain that. But we're promised that. And our only response, it'll be so magnificent, our only response will be to fall on our faces before the Lord and worship him. And I'm sure we'll say, Lord, I'm sorry for the doubts that I have. Thank you for the blessings you've given us. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I give, I thank you for the the assurances you give us, Father. I thank you for the blessings you give us, Father. Take away every fear from us, but the fear of you, the fear of the Lord, Father, which is which is a loving, respectful relationship fear that a loving child has with a loving Father. That we do not take our loving Father for granted, but we fear Him. In a godly way, make us dependent on you even more so. Let our Lord be our eternal focus. May we focus on eternity, not on what is before us today and think this is it, this is all, it's never going to get any better. No, let us focus on the eternal horizon. And march towards it as obedient, faithful people of the triune God. Let us grow in love for one another. We give thanks for the love that we have for each other. We give thanks for the spirit of unity we see Lord's Day after Lord's Day. Father, I just ask that this grow in strength and that that those who may not yet experience start experiencing it. Lord, give us the guidance to stay on the path of righteousness that you have pointed out to us. You've given us the ability to do this. Father, help us to stay on that path. Help us not to stumble. Help us to recognize the rocks on the path. Help us to recognize the snares and the traps that Satan has laid off to the side of the path of righteousness and not to be distracted by those by those glittery things that that lure us off your path and into those snares and traps. Father, and I pray for my brothers, my sisters that may have fallen into a snare or a trap, Father, that they be rescued from that and return to the path of righteousness because we know that you are ever ready and willing to bring us back to you if we depart for a time. Father, only a gracious, loving God treats as problematic children as you do. And we give thanks for that. I pray for the brethren here today, Lord, as they go out. Give them a blessed Lord's Day. Bless them as they go through this week. Keep them safe, Father, until we return again in this house that is yours. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.